Wildwood Community Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, if you would, please take out your Bibles and turn in them uh, to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, if you don't have a Bible, there's one under a chair in front of you, and you could take that Bible and turn to page 153, and you would find yourself at Ephesians 6. You know, from time to time in life, we experience what we might call a jolt of reality. And when a jolt of reality comes, it's startling, and yet it is a constructive thing, because we have a tendency as human beings um, to take things for granted, uh, to be lulled at times. And jolt of, jolts of reality sometimes come, for example, to sports teams. Now, I just want you to know, I wrote this out before the Sooners played Kansas State. And I just wanted to point out Dan Bass right here. He's wearing a Kansas State wild shirt, uh, Wildcat shirt. So if you need to get your frustrations let out in some way, uh, Dan is available after the service today. <laughs> but sports teams sometimes get uh, a little bit of a jolt of reality. Maybe it's been that they underestimated somebody, they weren't prepared, um, but they get this jolt of reality. In, 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 an, in an athletic contest, it may mean that you're nearly beaten and you have a jolt of reality, or, or maybe you lose to someone you shouldn't have lost to and there's a, a jolt of reality. Jolts of reality can come to us in the wake of storms that come upon us. You know, the severe kind, the floods, the earthquakes, the tornadoes, because you see, we tend to take for granted that we have electrical power, that we have uncontaminated water to drink, um, that we have a roof that will protect us from the elements. And, and when these kind of storms come and we lose power and we lose shelter, it's a jolt of reality. And the same thing can happen in the spiritual realm, in our spiritual walk, because there are certain things we take for granted. There are certain assumptions that we make. Maybe we're really not alert. Maybe we're not prepared. Maybe we even underestimate our spiritual opponent. And we can slip into this mindset that the Christian life is really going to be relatively smooth and that what we sort of expect is we're going to just cruise and glide our way into heaven. Well, in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul delivers to these believers who lived in Ephesus a jolt of reality, something they need to be reminded of that was really crucial to their spiritual survival and to their daily victory, and it's also what we need. And some of what I'm going to share today is really going to startle some of us because we haven't been thinking this way. We have been lulled. But the truth is that we are in a war, and we live every day of our life in a spiritual war zone. Just think about it. When was the last time when you got up on a morning, starting out your day, and your mindset was, I'm heading out to battle? I need to remember who my adversaries are. I need to go through in my mind the tactics of our adversaries. I need to be alert today. I need to be tuned in today. 
What is it that I need to be equipped for the spiritual battle that I'm going to face? What are the keys to spiritual survival? And it's really interesting what Paul does in the book of Ephesians. You know, he spends several chapters celebrating our salvation in Christ. He enumerates our spiritual riches. And then he gives a series of exhortations to those who are in Christ. But then he feels like it's necessary to deliver a jolt of reality. And that jolt of reality is that we are daily in a spiritual war. It's just amazing how we get disconnected from that. We reside in a world that is hostile to the things of God. We actually live, I mean, when's the last time you thought this? We actually live in enemy-occupied territory. In fact, this world is domineered by the prince of the power of the air, as Paul actually says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 2. And here's what's amazing. Our adversary's power is way beyond my power. And daily, we're really in hand-to-hand combat with supernatural spiritual forces. And so what we want to do for the next few weeks is we want to do a short series of messages that I have entitled Braced for Battle, because that's what we want to be. We want to be braced for the reality of the battle that we face. And if you have your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 6, I want to read, we're going to look at more verses than this in in the coming weeks, but... I want to look at verses 10 to 13, just to help orient ourselves. In chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, finally, he's kind of drawing some conclusions here, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Now, really what we're going to do this morning is just reintroduce ourselves to the spiritual battle. And then we're going to talk more about what we need to be doing in light of that in the coming weeks. But we're going to examine four things today. We're going to look at the reality of spiritual battle. We're going to look at the strategy of the enemy. We're going to remind ourselves of the superiority of Christ. And then we're going to talk very briefly about the source of victory that we need to know about. Now, in all, in all reality, this is, a, this is a pivotal issue. And I need you to think with me a little bit today. Are we going to learn from this jolt of reality that Paul gives to us? Because we really have a choice. We can go through these messages we're going to go through, and we can allow them to benefit us to maybe make an adjustment in our perspective in everyday functioning. Or we can just sort of say, well, that's kind of an interesting topic, shrug our shoulders, and sort of walk away. And if we do that, I think we set ourselves up for spiritual defeat. So the first thing we want to look at today is the reality of the spiritual battle with Satan and his forces. 
you know, there are some common views that are very common in the world at large out there in the Christian community that relate to Satan in the supernatural world. One view is this view. There is no reality to the supernatural world. You want to talk about Satan? Some people would describe Satan as a laughable relic from a superstitious age. We just need to ignore all this stuff. We just need to treat it as if it's nothing. You know, years ago, there was a a comedian on television a lot who just made a joke out of the line, the devil made me do it. And it was like a ha, 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 ha time. Like, who would ever believe in, in, in Satan or in a supernatural world? The problem with that view that exists in our day is that the Bible teaches otherwise. The Bible tells us that Satan and the devil is a real person. In fact, we learn in these verses, in verse 11, that he has schemes. He has plans. He has strategy. We learn from chapter 4 of Ephesians in verse 27 that we should be careful not to give the devil, Satan, a foothold in our life, not to give him an opportunity. You look at verse 12. It says, our struggle is against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's an organized hierarchy of spiritual beings that exists. Now, there's a second somewhat common view that we see in the Christian world at large, and that view would be this. Well, the supernatural world exists, but not an everyday issue, not an everyday reality that we're at war. There's sort of just a little, you know, tip of the hat to the supernatural dimension that is evil. I don't have to be concerned about that. It's not going to affect me this week. By the way, that is a very common view among many Christians. Maybe not so much upstairs in their head, but how they live out their life. And the problem with that view is that the Bible teaches otherwise. Notice he says in verse 12 that we we have a struggle, we have a conflict. Literally, in the original language, it's the word for wrestling. It's the word for hand-to-hand combat. That's what wrestling really is hand-to-hand combat. And it is interesting where this jolt of reality comes in the book. If you look at the context, and you can go back and look at this, he is sharing this idea of a struggle and a conflict in a context of job relationships, in a context of family relationships, relationships between a parent and a child and a husband and a wife, in a context of relating to neighbors, relating to one another. And isn't it interesting, he says, because all of those relationships we can tend to struggle in, but he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. See, our tendency is to look at the conflict that we might have with people. It could be people in our family or people at work or whatever. We look at the conflict as merely a people issue, like people are the problem. But he says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. The New Testament, in the language of the people, puts it this way, for our contest is not with human foes alone, 
but with the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this dark world. That is, with the spirit forces of evil challenging us in the heavenly contest. See, the view of Scripture is that Satan and the supernatural world, it's a reality. It's an everyday reality. And whether we realize it or not, every day we live on a spiritual battlefield. We are engaged daily in a clash with the kingdom of darkness. We are in a spiritual war. Now, here's what we need to understand. The forces that oppose us want to undermine and sabotage our spiritual life. They want to undermine and sabotage the kingdom of God. So the first thing we just want to look at is this reality of of spiritual battle. But then we want to ask the question, well, how does the spiritual battle rage? How does our enemy operate? And that leads us to the second thing we wanted to look at today. And we're just orienting ourselves to the battle. And that is the strategy of the enemy. Look at at verse 11. It says, put on the full armor of God for a purpose so that you will be able to stand firm. And then we have the phrase, against the schemes of the devil. And, And the word there that is translated schemes in the original language is the word methodeia. And you can see in methodeia, we have our English word method there. These schemes refer to the methods and the strategies of Satan and his evil forces. And these methods and these strategies are very crafty, they're very clever, they're very sneaky. See, here's why understanding Satan is so important. You know that Satan is the greatest expert in subversion that the universe has ever seen? He's the greatest expert in manipulation that the world has ever seen. He is the greatest expert on how to assail the people of God that the universe has ever seen. And here's what's interesting. I'm 61 years old. I've lived for 61 years. I've learned a little bit about the battle in 61 years, but he has been honing his skills for millennia. For millennia. And when you're a veteran of battle, you learn a lot about battle. Well, what are some of his techniques, some of his schemes, some of his approaches? And by the way, we cannot deal with that all in one morning. I mean, this is a life study in Scripture, and I would encourage you to do that. But I want to highlight three things about his techniques, and they all relate to terms that describe him. And so the first one we want to highlight is the term that is used to describe Satan, and that is he is the tempter. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, he is titled that way. You know what's interesting about this is that he knows your weaknesses. He knows my personality quirks. He knows our natural penchants towards sin. He knows our situation that we're in. You can go back and you can study this in Matthew chapter 4, but remember when Jesus went into the wilderness, it says that he was in the wilderness 40 days without food. And then it's interesting what comes out of Satan's mouth. Hey, Jesus, why don't you, you know all these stones that are out here in the wilderness? Why don't you turn these stones into bread? Why did he say that? 
because he knew exactly what Jesus' situation was and he was going to take advantage of that. And he knows you and he knows me. He knows, he knows when we're susceptible to pride. He knows when we're susceptible to sensuality. He knows when we're in danger of an inordinate desire for money and wealth. He knows when we're in a situation where we would covet, uh, covet recognition from people. He knows all those things, and he is able to inject thoughts and ideas into our mind. You see this in John chapter 12 and John chapter 13. We learn there that Judas, remember Judas, he had a weakness for money. And it said he would often pilfer uh, the disciples' money box. He would steal things out of that. And in chapter 13, verse 2, it says that Satan put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus for what? For money. He knew just what Judas's weakness was, and he was going to play to it. In Acts chapter 5, you have the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and Ananias was someone who, who uh, liked to be prominent. He enjoyed the ego trip of everyone looking at him, and you remember the story goes that he had some land that was, he was free to sell or not sell, but he sold the land, and he gave some of the land money proceeds to the apostles, but he told everybody he gave it all. And it says there that Satan filled Ananias' heart to lie. Why? Because he just knew the way Ananias was. There's another technique that, that we can learn from related to Satan, and that involves the terms that he is a liar and he is a deceiver. In John 8, he is a liar and the father of lies. In Revelation 12, 9, speaks of the devil, Satan, who deceives the whole world. And what does he want to do with you and what does he want to do with me? Well, he wants to get men and women and young people to believe what is not true. And it's been this way from the very beginning. You go back to Adam and Eve, and he wanted them to believe what was not true. He said, hey, if you eat that fruit of the tree, you will not surely die. That's what God says, but I'm telling you, that's not gonna, that was not true. But he wanted them to believe that. And Satan is always doing this. Everyone's going to go to heaven. It doesn't make any difference whether you believe something or don't believe something. Yeah, even if you die, there's going to be all these other chances, and eventually everybody comes into heaven. It makes no difference what anybody believes. See, that's from the pit of hell. All religions are the same thing. They're all the same. And you've heard me say this many times. They're not all the same. There's only two kinds of religion in the world. Biblical Christianity and every other religious system. Every other religious system says there's some kind of list of things that you must do to establish a relationship with God. Biblical Christianity comes along and says there's nothing that you need to do. It's all been done for you in Christ, but what you need to do is embrace that by faith. All religions are not the same, but he's out there saying that all the time. And there's a lot of people today who are beginning, even in the Christian community at large, are beginning to kind of buy into that. He'll come along and say, happiness is found in the money that you get. Happiness is found in the stuff that you accumulate. Happiness is found in sensuality, found in lust. He wants us to believe what is not true. And you know what one of his best lies and deceptions is? That when we go through difficulty... that he wants us to begin to doubt God. 
and to doubt God's goodness. That's part of his strategy. You begin to doubt, can God really be God if he allows this to happen in my life? Certainly God can't be good if he lets this happen in my life. And, 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 you know, people have experienced that over the generations. You know Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the great reformer, and he is the author of the classic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. What you may not know is that Martin Luther struggled often with depression. And his biographer, Roland Baton, said this about Luther. He said, the content of his depressions was always the same. He always got depressed over the same thing. And he says, this is what the content was, the loss of faith that God is good and that he is good to me. That's the kind of lie, that's the kind of deception that the enemy brings. Have you ever struggled with that one? The loss of faith that God is good and that he is good to me. See, that comes from our enemy. And then there's a third technique that he tends to use that's built around um, the the title of being a slanderer. By the way, you know, that's literally what the devil means. It's literally translated slanderer, and that's what he does. And here's here's the way he works on us. You know, when we're being tempted and we're thinking about a, a, a certain sin, he gives us these mental thoughts of, you know, go ahead and do it. It'll be okay. It'll be worth it. And then we choose it and we do it. And then he comes along and says, you fool, you're worthless. How could you do such a thing? God will never forgive you for doing that. And not only does he assault us in that way, but then we learn from Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 that he turns to God and he accuses and slanders us. It says there day and night. You know, did you notice God what Bruce did? Did you see what he did? You can't accept him for who he is. He's just constantly doing this kind of stuff. There's other names we could talk about. He's called the destroyer uh, in Scripture. And he wants to destroy your spiritual life. He wants to destroy your marriage if you're married. He wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your reputation. See, that's why Luther, when he wrote that hymn, he says, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and his power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. On earth, we're not equals with him. And that leads us to the third thing we want to look at this morning, and that is the superiority of Christ. Just to remind ourselves that Satan and his forces are far exceeded by the Lord Jesus. Satan's power is overwhelmed and overshadowed by the power of God. Jesus is greater than all the hordes of hell. You know, my favorite illustration of this in the Bible goes back in the Old Testament to the second book of the Old Testament, the book of Exodus and Exodus 7. And what's happening there is you have, you know, Moses and Aaron are are really battling with all these sorcerers of Egypt. And and God is having 
Uh, Moses and Aaron perform miracles, and then, empowered by Satan, the sorcerers of Egypt are also performing miracles. And at one point, God says to Aaron, I want you to throw down Moses' staff, you know, the, the stick that he would use. I want you to throw down that staff, and he throws down his staff, and it becomes a snake. It becomes a serpent, a living thing. And then the amazing thing is that the sorcerers of Egypt and the power of Satan do the same thing. They throw their staves down, and they all become snakes and serpents. Aha! In verse 12, Aaron's goes and eats up all the other snakes. What's that telling us? God's power is greater than all the hordes of hell. Totally. And Satan is a formidable opponent for me, but not for Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is Satan's creator. We learn that from Colossians 1 verse 16. For in him all things were created in Jesus, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is Satan's creator. He is also Satan's defeater. Again, in Colossians in chapter 2, when Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphant, triumphed rather, over them. Now, I want to take a moment just to kind of illustrate this, and I love this illustration from Neil Anderson. So here's what he says. You have to put on your imagination cap for a minute. You have to visualize this. He says, imagine that you're standing at one end of a long, narrow street lined on both sides with two-story row houses. See, you get the picture? At the other end of the street stands Jesus Christ. Really, this would be ultimately meeting him to go into heaven. And he says, your Christian life is the process of walking down that long street of maturity and then there is absolutely nothing in the street which can keep you from reaching Jesus. So when you receive Christ by faith, you fix your eyes on him and you start walking toward him. But he says, since this world is still under the dominion of Satan, the row houses on either side are inhabited by beings who are committed to keeping you from reaching your goal. They have no power or authority to block your path or even to slow your step so they hang out the windows and they call to you, hoping to turn your attention away from your goal and disrupt your progress. And one of the ways, he says, that they will try to distract you is by calling out, hey, hey, look over here. I've got something you really want. It tastes good. It feels good. It's a lot more fun than your boring walk down this street. Come on in and take a look. He writes, that's temptation suggesting to your mind ways to serve yourself instead of God. He says, as you continue your walk toward Christ, you will also have thoughts like, I'm stupid, I'm ugly, I'll never amount to anything for God. Satan's emissaries are masters at accusation, especially after they have distracted you through temptation. One minute they're saying, try this, there's nothing wrong with it. And then when you yield, they're right there taunting, see what you did? How can you call yourself a Christian when you behave like that? And other remarks are hurled at you as you walk down the street. They might sound like this, you don't need to go to church today. It's not important to pray. It's not important to read the Bible. 
And he writes, that's deception, and it's Satan's most subtle and debilitating weapon. He says, you, you often hear these messages in the first person singular. I don't need to go to church today. I don't need to pray. I don't need to read my Bible. Satan knows you'll be more easily deceived if he can make you think that the thought was yours instead of his. He goes on to say, what is the enemy's goal at having his demons jeer you, taunt you, lure you, and question you from the windows and doorways along your path? He wants you to slow down, to stop, sit down, and if possible, give up your journey towards Christ. He wants to influence you to doubt your ability to believe and serve God. We're in a spiritual war. So how do you experience Victory in the face of this onslaught. Well, that's the fourth thing we want to look at, and that is the source of victory. And the source of victory is found in the superiority of Christ. Look again at Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in what way? In your own strength, in the Lord, and in the strength of His might. And as we're going to see in the weeks to come, he says in verse 13, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day. What is the evil day? It's the reference to that time. It may be coming this next week when the satanic assault comes upon us. And it could come on us suddenly. It's not necessarily preceded by some sort of a Doppler radar warning. It just comes. And we need to be prepared. See, these are supernatural things that are going on. Conventional tactics won't work against them. It's beyond my human ability to handle it, but it's not beyond God's ability to handle it. And we need to be braced for battle. We're going to talk the next few weeks about our spiritual defense and how the necessary resources are available to us. So you need to come back. This was just the laying out of the foundation this week. But I do want to draw two life lessons from what we've looked at today. What you can walk away from today, and the first one is the futility of self-dependence. This is, this is what is really so dumb on our part. We are not smart enough. We are not experienced enough. We are not powerful enough. If I'm going to depend on myself, there will be failure. And the second life lesson is our daily need of a close relationship with Christ. Every day, we need to be walking closely with Him. A.W. Tozer said this regarding our inner life. He said, the best way to keep the enemy out is to keep Christ in. And I love this imagery. He says, the sheep need not be terrified by the wolf. They have but to stay close to the shepherd. It is not the praying sheep Satan fears, but the presence of the shepherd. Thus, we have that daily need of a close relationship with Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for the Scriptures again, and we thank you for the opportunity to, to have a jolt of reality, a reminder. These are not new things to many of us, but we need to be reminded of them. And may, Father, over the next couple of weeks, you just 
in a fresh way deliver us from this idea of self-dependence. And may you draw us back into a deeper, closer walk with the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. And we thank you in his name. Amen.